This is Bedside, a podcast series on a mission to debunk sex. I'm your host, Tatiana, and each week we'll uncover stories, ideas, routines, and expert information to help guide you on your ever-evolving journey of good sex. We believe that through democratizing sexual wellness, we can shift cultural taboos and make way for authentic and limitless access to pleasure, joy, and connection to the body. Soraya Shamali is an award-winning writer and media critic who speaks frequently on topics related to gender, media, tech, women's rights, sexual violence, and free speech. Soraya is the director of the Women's Media Center Speech Project, an initiative dedicated to expanding women's civic and political participation. As an activist, Ms. Shamali has spearheaded multiple successful campaigns challenging corporations to address online harassment and abuse, restrictive content moderation and censorship, and institutional biases that affect free speech. Soraya was named one of Elle Magazine's 25 Inspiring Women to Follow on Twitter and was the recipient of the Women's Institute for Freedom of the Press's Women and Media Award. She's the author of the upcoming book, Rage Becomes Her, The Power of Women's Anger. And that's exactly what we dive in today on this episode. Soraya shares with us her explorations into anger and the gendered and racial implications of who deserves to be angry. We dig deep into this topic and cover things like politics of emotions, the limited language we have for expressing and understanding how we feel, and so much more. I can't wait for you to hear my conversation with Soraya. Let's get started. Thank you so much for joining me today. For those of you who aren't familiar with Soraya's work, I'd love for you to tell us about who you are and just kind of how you got started doing the work that you do. So go ahead and, and, and let us know how you got started. So I think probably, I can't really remember a time when I, <laughs> when I wasn't thinking about these things. Certainly by college, I started working and activism uh, related to women's rights. So in university, I started a, a feminist magazine, and then I went into publishing that eventually evolved into data and tech. Many years later, after being a, an executive in that field um, for 10, 15 years, I went back to writing full-time about women's issues and really the intersection of gender with virtually any aspect of society, politics, religion, education, technology, economics, to look at the way we think about gender, not just in terms of how people look or what their roles are, but as a organizing superstructure to society. And um, my sort of grounding in feminism is intersectional feminism and something called transversal feminism, which has to do with the way that overlapping aspects of people's identities affect their position in society and how to work across difference to meet objectives. I'm curious, like, what was your experience growing up um, and what sort of like led you here? Were there any kind of pivotal moments that made you say, hey, this is something that I really would love to dive into? I don't know that Anybody that I know immersed in this field says, hey, this is something I'd really love to dive into. I think that a lot of us get here 
through experiences that are unfair, unjust, oppressive, hypocritical, traumatic, violent. I mean, I, I think that when you become aware at a fairly young age that there are double and triple standards that the stories you're being told, whether those stories are about equality or meritocracy or freedom or justice, they don't really apply to you. And then you think, okay, well, what does that mean? You know, how, how does this work? Who does it apply to? Why is one group of people in this position versus another group of people? And so I, I think that for me, that was pretty evident very early on. Um, I grew up as a Catholic and the position of women in Catholicism, the position of LGBTQ people in Catholicism is pretty piss poor, and it remains that way. And so that was, I think, probably my earliest sense of difference and hypocrisy. It's ironic, really, because I think that my social justice orientation came out of my early life lessons in Catholicism, which then led me to reject Catholicism as a deeply corrosive and corrupt patriarchal hierarchy. So your book, Rage Becomes Her, is such an amazing lens into kind of an emotion that we all experience. We all experience rage. But what I love so much is that your writing takes a look at how gender and race really is the foundation of who deserves rage and who deserves to be angry. So I, I know that's the topic I'm really excited to dive into with you today, but maybe as, as a forefront, I'd love for you to even even just explain what is anger. <laughs> um, the way I approached it in this book was that anger is a, a fundamental aspect of being human, that it's it's a core human emotion and that without it we wouldn't have survived as a species it's the signal emotion it warns us about risks or threats to our dignity or our our well-being or our physical state and so my question was how is that socially constructed how do we in society learn to think about and process and recognize or not this emotion and so anger became a really great filter through which to look at status in society, power in society, inequality in society. Because even though all human beings experience anger, our anger is simply not treated the same way. And so what did that mean? And what are the effects of the way our anger is treated? So I, I, I take several different approaches in the book. One is a life stage approach, starting in childhood and going through through a long life. What happens to women um, and women with different identities when they have to use anger in self-defense, for example, or to seek fairness or legitimacy or authority or leadership or justice? What happens? Uh, and that's really what I talk about in the book. And, and almost how it's such a misunderstood emotion. I think that it is a misunderstood emotion. I also think it's a deliberately misunderstood emotion. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yes. Can it, and, and do you think that anger can be a good thing? Yeah, I mean, I, I do. I, I think that the point about anger, the, the, the objective of anger is to not be angry, right? Right. And so I quote Audre Lorde early on and Adrian Rich talking about the information that is contained in anger. I mean, anger, for example, is 
the most rational response to the political situation we're in right now. Right. You know, it turns into rage when it's unaddressed, when it doesn't find meaning or when it doesn't bear uh, fruit. Because what the anger is saying is there's something wrong and we need to do something about it. But what women often learn in childhood is that they're not allowed to demand that their community, their society, their families do things in response to their need because we're socialized as girls and women to put the needs of others first. And so we interpret girls' anger overwhelmingly as sadness, but sadness and anger are really different. Sadness has its virtues, but it's also not thought of as an agent of change, whereas anger is an emotion of change. It is demanding. It is insistent. It is subjective. Like we objectify women all the time, but anger is a very, anger literally has to begin with I. I feel angry. I am experiencing X. I think, right? Those are those are all focusing on the subjective. And so I just think that in order to recognize the value of anger, we have to recognize the legitimacy of people claiming it. And that's the core problem, is the legitimacy of the, the unequal distribution of legitimacy to citizenship, to rights, authority. Absolutely. And and I can't help but think about the idea of sort of gender policing from a young age and and defining the permissions that people have behind anger. I know that like you've mentioned that women have permission to be angry in these very socially palatable expressions of emotion and and those those contexts that they live in like mothering or being teachers and being in these very nurturing positions but the second that they breach outside of that context is when it can be deemed as hysterical or crazy and and I'd love for you to even chat about that a little bit more when it comes to our politics. So actually one of the main reasons that I was moved to write the book was our 2016 election because clearly anger is a global tide. It's it's part of populist movements. It's part of resistance movements. It's uh, quite central to the message of proto-authoritarians and fascists. And, and so there was anger everywhere and it just seemed to be getting stronger and stronger in our political discourse. But what was clear in media, in particular, which is my sort of area of specific expertise, was that not everyone's anger was treated equally. And so men like Donald Trump and Bernie Sanders could leverage populist anger. They could look angry. They could stomp their podiums. They could get red in the face. They could look unhinged. They could blather, you know, kind of spittle flying out of their mouths. It didn't really matter because, in fact, because of our ideas about anger and gender, their articulation of anger or their embrace of anger confirmed people's notions of masculinity and leadership. And so there was no penalty that came. As a matter of fact, there were benefits that came because they could really tap into populist anger. But for women candidates, and in that in that case, it was you know down to Hillary Clinton, to articulate anger or to tap into anger or to claim anger or express anger really confounds people's ideas about women and women's quote-unquote natural ways of being um, or or appearing and so there was penalty for that and we see that in our day-to-day lives I mean we know that in boardrooms if male CEOs express anger they're more likely to convince people but if women CEOs express anger in the exact same way they're more likely to be reviled disliked and not thought of as very compelling one of the things that you pointed out was that one of the 
areas that women are most uh, rewarded for being angry in, um, one of the only areas, is when they are being maternal. So people can understand that because that fits in with their ideas of women's roles. They're, they're angry as mothers. Their anger is on behalf of someone else. It's not, quote unquote, selfish. Mm. Um, and so we see in our politics all the time that what women do to be politically powerful and active is tip their hats at that notion. So you have, you know, mothers who drove the temperance movement and mothers against drunk driving and mothers for saying gun reform and mothers of the movement against police violence. And so it's almost as though they have to say, okay, fine, we understand that our primary role is reproductive. It's to be mothers. No one's saying this overtly, right? Right. But it makes their political actions and their political rage and their political engagement palatable to people because they're like, oh, it's really about being a mother. It's not about being powerful or a citizen or ambitious or angry. And do you think that we, you know, from from what I'm gauging from this is that Yes, we're getting kind of these cultural messages that we're also mimicking. But do you think from a young age, we're also, I'm speaking for, for women here, like, are we, are we also mimicking our mothers and our grandmothers and, and, and how we learn how to handle emotions? Yeah, I mean, I think so. I mean, it's very clear to me. I mean, I write about a genealogy of anger. I start with my great-grandmother and then my grandmother and then my mother and my sisters and I and my daughters. And, you know, we basically as children we learn from the people around us. We, we intuit, that's how we, that's, we're humans. That's, that's how we're socialized. And so we do see the way people behave, which is sometimes, you know, sometimes it contradicts the words they're saying. Uh, And it's, it's really important to think about how we're modeling behavior for children. I mean, some people are overt. They will flat out tell little girls, you know, if you don't have something good, don't say it and never bring negative negativity to, to a situation and you know you don't want to be aggressive and anger is really harmful and dangerous and you know they actively teach girls to ignore and deny anger and what the anger is telling them or what the anger would bring them if they made demands Um, and that's just part of being a good girl it's part of being a a lady and part of being a, a, a good person and a nurturing woman and those lessons can be quite overt. But on the other hand, they can also be very subtle. No one has to actually say those words to convey the same intent. So we know that in schools, girls are held to much higher politeness norms. They are asked to smile more. They are told to use their nice voices more. They're more heavily penalized for disruptive behavior than in boys is seen as rambunctiousness or leadership potential, especially if they're young black girls. You know, young black girls are are suspended and expelled and disciplined in schools between five and 11 times the rate of their peers um, for displaying behavior that very often is casually dismissed as, you know, boys being boys and not being able to control themselves. Right. And and you and I kind of want to go back to this note that you said earlier about Audre Lorde um, saying that anger is knowledge. And I, I'd really love you, for you to explain that a little bit more. You know, a lot of philosophers talk about anger as a, the epistemic emotion. It, it's about what we know. And so when you get angry, you get angry because of something that you know that you've experienced. Your knowledge comes from experience. You have feelings, but those feelings you know, we, we tend to juxtapose feelings with rational thought, which is absurd. 
that you can't separate feelings and thought. They're totally, completely entwined. And so anger really is about how you bring what you know to the world. Because it's really, although we learn that it's an isolating emotion, because we're told very often, particularly as girls, that people won't like us, that we'll be ugly and unlikable. And, you know, that that's really like a cardinal sin for women, not to be part of social connection and not to nurture social community. But in fact, it is a very social emotion because when you're angry, usually it has to do with other people, with something in your environment. It requires that you make demands of people based on the knowledge that you have, the experiences that that you've had. And you're saying, my experiences and my knowledge are legitimate. Pay attention to what I'm saying and help me do something about it. That's the connection between anger experience and knowledge that she's talking about. I kind of want to backtrack here because I I don't want to miss the note about the racial divides between anger too. It's not just gendered. Yeah, I mean, I think what's sometimes difficult for, you know, particularly, I'm going to focus on the United States, forget the rest of the world for the time being, but (laughs) particularly in the United States, I think it's sometimes hard for white women who are feminists to realize that they have a form of racial privilege that means that they are oppressing or policing black women in much the same ways that they perceive white men oppressing or policing them. And that's because as white women, they actually embody this intersection of of race and gender too, right? And so what we see is that anger and the entitlement to anger, particularly as a political force, is unequally distributed in society. So among men, a, a black man really cannot use his anger the way a white man can because anger in a black man is criminalized. It's seen as violent, threatening, harmful, regardless of how righteous or justified it is. And so you can see the difference, for example, between a a man like Donald Trump, who is freely articulating his anger, or Lindsey Graham, or Brett Kavanaugh, right? Like the poster child for the tantrumy, angry white man (laughs) is Brett Kavanaugh. Yes. (laughs) You know, his face and that snarl pretty much sums up the situation that we're in. And so Compare that, though, to Obama, who it was kind of a joke, but Key and Peele came up with the anger translator for a reason. You know, a, a, a man in a, in a black man's body simply cannot articulate anger that same way that white men are free to. And the same goes for ethnic and racial differences in women. I mean, the fact is there are all kinds of stereotypes, right? So we know that if you're a Hispanic woman and, and you get angry, chances are pretty good that you're going to be sexualized or described in terms of some tasty food, right? Like she's just so hot or spicy. Um, spicy. And if you're a woman of Asian descent, it's not so much that, that you're going to be described as angry, but sad. You know, if you, if you, if you Google certain terms related to these things, you get a lot of pictures of crying women who are, Um, of Asian descent. If you're a black woman, black women are constantly having to navigate this stereotype of the angry black woman, and they don't even have to say anything or do anything. You know, they could state a fact calmly and someone will think that they're, or or impute anger. And if you're a white woman, the anger stereotype is more related to you're just being crazy, unhinged, Mm -hmm. you know, and and there's lots of imagery that that goes a lot along with this in our media. Yeah, absolutely. And and I mean it it's hard because I think that 
I think that the anger and and the frustration is is real, especially as we're speaking about our political climate. And I think that I I wonder how we how we even begin to break these stereotypes, how we begin to reverse engineer these tight confines that we've found ourselves in when it comes to really expressing the information, the knowledge as we go back to that we that needs to get out there. Yeah, I mean, I think that. Well, like everything has to happen at the same time everywhere, right? Like I think it really depends on the context. In the in the long term, we really need to be thinking about childhood education and socialization and the examples that we set in the media, you know, giving kids the ability, the critical lens and framework of media analysis. When they're consuming media, how can they think critically about what they're seeing? and arming them intellectually and emotionally with the tools to be resilient in the face of stereotypes, all kinds of stereotypes. In the workplace, we know that implicit bias training often backfires. It makes people double down. Mm. And um, so there's a lot of really interesting work being done that focuses on engineering around bias, altering, adapting, editing systems so that they actually are built to recognize that bias is stubborn and consequential and to reduce and mitigate the effects of that bias. And I think it's really incumbent on all of us to hold our media accountable. You know, when, when you see this treatment of women politicians, when, the, you know, when, when gendered language is used to describe them as unlikable and shrill, what do we do? Do we say something about that? Do we call our editor or do we tweet at a media outlet or do we hold a pundit accountable? I mean, those are all consciousness. They're like public consciousness raising techniques that we can engage in. Yes, I I love that you you point that out. And I think the media is a really interesting place where this language or lack thereof is really being exemplified. And I think even in the context of sexual harassment, the entire Me Too movement, we've just seen this kind of like um, entire unraveling of gender politics and um, just the way that our emotions have been exploited. Yeah, I mean, I don't disagree with you. I, I think social media in particular, the currency of social media is engagement. And engagement is better when people have strong emotions, usually strong negative emotions. I also would love to chat about how anger physically manifests in our body. I know that you talk about how it really becomes materialized. So what kind of have you uncovered from from your research and writing? So I focus lots of different aspects of the book on on this, the way that anger can become material in the body. Um, It's true pretty much of all emotions, if they're not if they're not recognized and processed, suppressing emotion is just bad for us. It's bad to uh, have that be diverted into other parts of our bodies, which is essentially what happens. I I think I write that anger will always find a way. You can ignore it. You can not name it. You can pretend you're not angry. You can minimize it. You can call it something else, but it's going to find a way, and that way might end up hurting you. So in the book. I really looked at as many of the most recent studies about the role that suppressed anger plays in poor health outcomes. That's one aspect of it. So, for example, we see high rates of suppressed anger in pretty much a wide range of illnesses that are sometimes dismissed as women's illnesses, like anxiety, depression, mental distress, disordered eating, chronic pain, 
all of those share the quality of suppressed anger. And that doesn't necessarily mean that it's causal, but there are correlations. And studies interestingly show that people who process their anger are much better able to manage pain and discomfort, which is a, a, a very, very valuable thing if, if, for example, you're in chronic pain or, or you have autoimmune disorders. The other thing, though, that's interesting is that because women are penalized for showing anger, they will sometimes not show anger at times when anger is vital and necessary. So in emergency rooms, for example, women, particularly black women and women of color, are left in emergency rooms waiting for much longer periods of time than men are. So in the sort of hierarchy of identity, it's pretty clear that white men are getting help and they also get pain relief much faster than virtually anybody else. Now that may be that people have biases, but it may also be related to the fact that white men are more socially entitled to get angry. So if they're waiting, they're much more likely to say, why am I here waiting? I'm in pain. Mm. You know, and then the third aspect of all of this is that we tend to impute emotionality as a we, we connect emotionality with women and not with men, which is so ironic. But anyway, um, we, we, we impute emotionality. And what that means is that a lot of people will dismiss what women are saying as a matter of her feelings, like the pain isn't real, like what she knows about her own physical experiences is not valid. And so there are all of these really horrible, egregious examples of women's treatment failing because people are dismissive of them. So whether you express the anger or not, this idea that women are emotional is still really dangerous in medical situations where medical professionals might harbor biases that lead them to neglect neglect women. The waiting room scenario is just such a prime example yeah. of, of who gets priority. Yeah, I mean, and that's also global. Like the, the studies that I found are from all over the world. Um, where these waiting these waiting times are kind of disturbing, right? Like they're it's disturbing. Yeah. And 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 we also we tend to think that pain is exceptional in men, but that it's just part of women's lives. Yes. Thank you so much for saying that. Especially when it comes to chronic pain, you know, there's so many there's so much research coming out now and so many new diseases and illnesses finally being defined and really being taken seriously that for so long were de- deemed as women's issues, you know, maybe it was just like, oh, you you just have a heavy period, but in reality they're dealing with endometriosis um or or whatnot. So, you say that self-care is politically revolutionary, that it's tied to our self-governance and how infantilizing anger actually denies that self-governance. I'd love just to hear more of that from you because self-care is definitely something that people really put on the back burner. Uh, A lot of people don't feel deserving of self-care, of pleasure. Yeah, I mean, I think self-care is a double-edged sword because the self-care industry really exploded hand in hand with neoliberalism's stripping of safety nets or anything even remotely uh, attached to the idea of a care economy. And so what I really say is that self-care is very important and seeking pleasure is important, 
but you cannot self-care your way into equality. Like you, you can't get enough pedicures or massages or candles to solve the wage gap, right? Mm-hmm. And we need to be able to, to make this distinction because I think that a lot of people are driven to self-care because their societies don't care for them. So that's that's sort of the, the negative aspect of that. However, self-care is also important, I think, because it has to do with the idea of self-governance. So if you are capable of caring for yourself, if you are capable of governing yourself, that has a relationship to our notions of citizenship. And it's a refutation of paternalistic politics that say, we know what's good for you. We, we take care of you. You know, I'm doing this because I love women. I'm going to propose this anti-abortion bill because I, I care for women and I, I know what's good for them better than they know themselves. So it begins all tangled up in these kinds of considerations. And it's really interesting because I think a lot of people are also sold these ideas that, especially when it comes to their self-care, women need scented tampons or, you know, their genitals are dirty. That's been a direct message that's come from not women themselves. Yeah, I, I mean, I think that's true. You know, I mean, there's a lot of commercialization of self-care that's just profit, right? Like, we're going to create all of these experiences and these products and we're going to bathe them in pink and make things fluffy and soft for you. Is that that what you mean? Yeah, yes. Yeah, whenever I see that, my first go-to action is to look up the board of directors of those companies (laughs) and then honestly publicly shame them because it is ridiculous for a company to exploit that market and then just simply not commit to parity in their own organization. Like they just shouldn't get away with that. So this leads me to another question, which I had I had as I was doing my research here on you and, and reading your book. Um, and I thought, how does Soraya not get angry while she's researching <laughs> anger? <laughs> Well, no, I, I write that. I say, is it possible to write a book about women's anger without getting angry? And no, of course not. There's just no way. Right. You know, it's infuriating. You really have to you have to manage the level of intensity of rage that you might feel. <laughs> That's how I put it. Do you do you implement your own routine around your work or boundaries? I maybe just in life in general around your anger. Yeah, I mean, I I think that I think it's impossible to do this kind of work and stay healthy if you don't like you have to have boundaries. A lot of the the kind of work that I do, for example, focuses on sexual violence. And uh, for a period early on when I was intensely researching and and writing, this is way before the book, I was writing about sexual violence a lot. I started experiencing secondary trauma, but I didn't recognize that. You know, I didn't, I I just didn't know un, until I was really in the throes of it. And so I think it's really important. And again, this goes back to this notion of self-care and boundaries. It's very important to establish those boundaries so that you can think clearly and so that you can be healthy and that it doesn't interfere with your relationships, but that you're, in, you're you're able to continue doing the work that you want to do. So so tell me a little bit more about the work that you do with sexual trauma and violence. Well, basically, I started writing about sexual violence because I think understanding it 
is so central to addressing issues of inequality. And so that led me to write a lot about rape as a social phenomenon uh, in virtually any context. So in schools, in politics, in sports, in religion. I mean, there's really nowhere to go where this is not an issue. And the result of that was that I got targeted online, uh, which happens to a lot of women, particularly if they're writing about gender or race or, you know, the sort of issues that challenge the status quo power systems, is that they're targeted with vitriol online. And that vitriol includes death threats and rape threats and graphic pornography. So that pretty early on pushed me towards activism to challenge social media platforms to recognize those types of threats as violating their terms of service and their guidelines about hate speech. And then I ended up at the Women's Media Center where I established an initiative that's focused on addressing these issues at institutions in order to make sure that women could could participate in civic and political life. Like in institutions, someone has to determine what a legitimate risk is, what a legitimate threat is, whether the institution is going to support its employees, whether the institution is going to make available therapeutic services or insurance or security guards. Um, And so all of those considerations have been built over time around the experiences essentially of able-bodied white men, usually men who have been educated in a certain way. And so they don't actually factor in why it would be, for example, that a black trans woman writer would be having a different experience and that her experience of threat and risk needed to be considered legitimate too. And so how does a newsroom deal with online harassment and threats? You know, we had a good example of that just a couple of weeks ago when a writer at the Washington Post, Felicia Sanders, she tweeted about Kobe Bryant's uh, sexual assault case. She didn't even write about it. She just shared an article from another platform. And she was and, fired? Was she fired? Well, first of all, she was attacked online. Tens of 10,000 people attacked her online. And then her own publisher, her own, like her own newsroom, said that she was embarrassing the Washington Post and needed to stop. And then her managing editor or or someone in that capacity said that she needed to delete her tweets and if she felt unsafe, she should go to a hotel. So they didn't support her at all. They actually made the situation worse. A year before, a reporter who happened to be a man was similarly threatened and their response to him was to pay to put him in a hotel and to have round-the-clock security for three days. And that's a double standard, right? Like, what, yeah. what what was the basis of that? Is that institution going to make sure that that woman has freedom of speech and expression and that she has the backing of her, of her community and society? The good thing that came out of that was that the Writers Guild at the Post, over 200 people, uh, wrote in support of her for her, uh, and she was she was suspended to have her reinstated. An observation that I've kind of picked up is a lot of companies and a lot of institutions like to, you know, say that they're pro women's, you know, breaking the the wage gap. They're they're about uh, anti harassment training. They'll do all of that, but really, when push comes to shove, there's a lot of discomfort in actually the the real the real implementation of that work. You know, I think people think that intent is the issue, right? That there are bad actors who, with intention, do bad things. And that's not the problem we have. 
the problem we have is that the baseline, the default, the environment we live in is inherently problematic. And so you don't have to intend to do anything. You just have to not do something, right? You have to ignore it. And so the example that I use often when I when I talk to high schools that I think is kind of interesting is I had, you know, my, my daughter's graduated from high school uh, recently and just before they left, the school very excitedly sent the parents of girls an email that said, hey, we're offering this self-defense class at school because your girls are about to go off to college and it would be great if they had self-defense. And it will be $100 ahead for the girls and it's going to be held for six hours on campus on X day. And that enraged me for many reasons. One was, what message are we sending I mean, I think self-defense is great if people want to do it. But first of all, these girls, all of them, if they were going to go to college, were going to be going to college more or less with boys like the ones that they were in school with. So we're saying, okay, you need to arm yourself. You need to protect yourself to go to college, um, which is kind of a scary proposition, right? Right. Secondly, the boys did not know this. The, The parents of boys did not get this message and did not know what was going on. Third, the girls were being asked to pay $100 each to do this. There was no class offered for $100 to tell boys how not to be rapists by accident. Yes. Like, I, I would like to see the email that says, hey, par- I mean, because according to the logic inherent in that email, that's what should happen if you believe that there's a binary world and that boys can't control themselves and that they also can't be raped. Let's not let's not even talk about that aspect, right? Right. Because the the, the amount of rape myth, mythologizing inherent in segregating the girls and teaching them how to defend themselves is quite profound. Um, but in that case, the intention was good. We're going to teach girls how to defend themselves. But the default situation was really bad. Yes, I, I actually got into this work because of that exact narrative when it came to schooling, where I found that by the time I went to college, that there were so many bad situations where there were bad dates, bad sexual experiences between just the community I saw around me. Um, and it was a lot about the girls taking, yes, the self-defense classes and and making sure not to walk late at night alone. But I, but there was no other, no other narrative in, in that. Yeah, I, I think it's absurd. But again, there's the idea that we don't want, in this equation, I know that one of the considerations is we don't want boys to feel bad or feel blamed or feel guilty by association, right? And so that's a lot of empathy, as Kate Mann would say. Like, I understand that. But in the first place, don't segregate these kids. They're all in this boat together, right? And so to shield boys from this information doesn't do anybody any good. I mean, it is a privilege to go to college, not worrying that you're going to be raped and not having to pay a hundred dollars a pop to like prepare yourself on the eventuality. Absolutely. Oh man. (laughs) There's so (laughs) many intricacies here. (laughs) There are. Kind of as we're wrapping up here, as I was reading and as we're talking a lot about anger and rage, the opposite here kind of is joy and happiness. How do we start communicating in regards to reaching joy? And I, this this might even just tap into kind of a, a language void that we have. Well, that's a very big question. It's, I mean, 
we just don't live in a culture that respects women's rights to pleasure and joy. That's just depressing, but true, you know? Um, You see it all the time, particularly when it comes to sex, but that's not the only kind of example, right? Like, I think of Megan Rapinoe, who celebrated very publicly her soccer team's, you know, the Women's World Cup victory, and her standing unabashed with her arms up in the air essentially saying worship me right like i did this great thing i'm taking pleasure in my accomplishment a lot of people appreciated that and it resonated with them and you know people turned her into their avatars and shared the image and it's sort of already iconographic but by the same token millions of people criticized her for that reviled her for that she's an attention whore she's claiming all the glory she's not supporting her team she's unpatriotic Mm. right like the idea that a woman could accomplish greatness and take pleasure in her accomplishment is very uncomfortable to people yes and like on a day-to-day personal level this is the fact that really sticks in my head there's some interesting studies a survey that shows that when a woman makes more money in a, in a heterosexual couple than her spouse both she and he lie about it on surveys They reduce her income and they increase his income. And that is in essence to protect masculine identity, right? To protect the idea that the man is the provider. And what I find really so disturbing about that over and above just the fact of it is that how does a woman like that celebrate a professional accomplishment at home? You know, if she gets a a big raise, does she actually feel good about it? Does she go home and say hey, I want to celebrate, you know, I just got this raise. If she's lying about it on surveys, is she minimizing her accomplishments to make her spouse feel better? Mm -hmm. I find that women really don't take the time to celebrate their accomplishments and and their success. And I find that when I'm speaking to men, I'm oh, I always leave the conversation and thinking, I wish women would speak the way that men speak about their success. I mean, I was in a conversation with someone, it was totally unwarranted, and all of a sudden they're pulling up their Amazon bestsellers um, right. on on. Isn't that amazing? Yeah, and they're showing me the link. And you know, you could you could just tell me you have a book. You don't even need to pull up the link. And I was yeah. like, a woman would never do this. No, never, ever. And actually, I've been writing about this, and I, I looked up the word pride, and mm. I looked up the, the all of the antonyms of pride, and the list of opposites is, I'm not joking, it is a veritable description of femininity. All of the opposites of pride are characteristically feminine qualities that are not just feminine, but idealized, right? And so there's something called a modesty effect, which is because women are expected to be modest, they don't toot their own horns, right? Right. And that makes negotiating for salaries or for jobs or for promotions very hard. Yes. Because you you can't optimize those situations if you can't be proud of what you've done. And we learn not to express pride pretty quickly. The thing about, um, here, I'm going to, I'm going to talk about the, the antonyms of pride for a minute, because it, it is really quite amazing. Hold on. Okay, so demureness, humbleness, humility, modesty, meekness, shyness, timidity, self doubt, mm. unselfishness, 
bashfulness, passivity, modesty, those are the ones that come up first. Wow. You know, modesty is a big deal for women. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. And we, 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 uh, we judge other women on it as well. It's not just a, a men versus women sort yeah. of sort of judgment. Yeah. Yeah. Not at all. And I, and I think that's a mistake people make. It's not, you know, women, you aren't born feminist. It's not like you're born with a gene that says, I will reject, you know, white supremacist patriarchy. That's just not what happens. There are lots of progressive men and lots of conservative women. Thank you for sharing kind of some of your, your latest, your thoughts here. That's, that's oh, exciting. It's a pleasure I, to talk to you. I feel like this could be a really interesting next book. <laughs> well, I am working on that. Oh, really? Um, who knows if anybody's going to be interested in it, though? I mean, I think it's really important. I think this idea of m- modesty is really important. So when when people come to your work, is there something that do you kind of have a, a message that you you want to leave with them? Or if there was sort of one thing that you could leave with your your audience, what would that be? Honestly, I I think that a lot of people think, well, here's a woman, she's a feminist, she's writing about emotions, it must be for women. And it is for women, but in fact, I think the book is much more valuable for men. I mean, I think a lot of men are trying hard to be good men in a time when what constitutes a good man is open to interpretation. And too many men really deny the reality of women's lives and the differences between our experiences. So in the U.S., more than half of men think sexism is a thing of the past. If they happen to be white men, more than half of them think they're more subject to racism than a black man, for example. And so there's a lot of denial when women speak, when women say, I'm not feeling safe, I'm actually really vulnerable on the street or at work or when I travel, or if they say, we don't need you to provide for us, we just want to make a fair wage. Those are confrontations of masculinity. Um, And so I write about that in a chapter called Denial. Um, And I would just hope that anybody who reads the book, much more likely to be a woman, um, feels comfortable initiating conversations with men and maybe using the book to do that. Well, Soraya, this was so incredible. I'm I'm really touched by the work that you do. I'm honestly inspired to kind of keep forging on in this space because I think it's it's really important that we we speak up and advocate for for what is what is deserved and what's needed. So, tell us where we can connect with you um, and what we have to look forward to next. Oh, well, thank you so much. It was really delightful to talk to you. I so appreciate your interest in this topic. Um, I share my work usually in Twitter, and my Twitter handle is at S-C-H-E-M-A-L-Y. Also in Facebook, where I have a a writer's page. And those are probably the the two easiest ways, because I'm a freelancer, so I write all over the place. Um, And uh, I'm... I'm hopefully en route to writing a second book on related issues. Um, so fingers crossed. Amazing. Well, well, thank you again. And maybe when your next book comes out, we can have a second chat. I'd love to. Oh, I would love that. I'd love that to. That would be great. Up. Thank you so much, Tatiana. Thank you for listening to the Bedside Podcast. If you liked this episode and want to follow along with similar stories and interviews, be sure to check out our Instagram at The Bedside and thebedside.co online. 
Make sure to subscribe, leave a review, and of course, share with your friends. It's the best way you can support us and our good sex mission. Thank you for listening.